Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. My children love it when I change my mind, and my children hate it when I change my mind. Sometimes they're desperate for me to change my mind. For instance, let's say they spent Saturday morning watching cartoons, and then I tell them, no more screen time today. But then their friends call and invite them to go to the movies. Well, suddenly they are desperate for me to relent, to change my mind. And they could care less about what I said earlier. Or another example. Let's say I tell them if they want dessert, they'll have to eat everything on their plate. And then they find out what's for supper and what's for dessert and they're desperate for me to change my mind. Do I have to have the soup or whatever it is? At certain points along the way, I have told our children that they can't watch this TV show or that movie. But then later, after further reflection, I've changed my mind. And I've said, okay, you can watch it, which isn't always a wholehearted endorsement of whatever it is, but an attempt to train, not just shelter them, but train them to think about what they're digesting and, and what the narrative and what the story is and and just learning how to navigate the very murky, redemptive world of media. Sometimes my children's survival is dependent on me changing my mind like dangerous roads and we have to change our plans or we receive new medical information and we have to change our plans. Nearly every single day as a parent, I change my mind about something. And it's all about doing what's best for my children. It's love that requires me to be responsive and adaptable and flexible. I bet I get asked to change my mind 10 to 20 times a day, at least, by my children. Now, at the same time that my children love it when I change my mind, they hate it when I change my mind. It just depends on the circumstances. For instance, let's say that they've finished every chore on their chore chart. They're, they're done with all the chores that Molly and I have said, you have to do this today. But the house is kind of a disaster, and so let's say I tell them, Actually, you need to chip in and help clean up some more. Here, put this laundry away. Or uh, I'd like you to help load the dishwasher. And suddenly they hate it that I've changed my mind. Now they want me, they, they want to hold me to what I said previously. Like, no, that's not on the chore chart. You can't change your mind. Or another example. Let's say we have plans to go out. For ice cream as a family but the kids get into an argument with one another they start being disrespectful 
And so I say, well, guys, we're going to be leaving in the next five minutes for ice cream and kids that want ice cream will need to have things worked out with their siblings and with their parents. And sometimes the meltdown or the argument or the disrespect persists. And so sometimes I have to tell them, look, I'm, I'm sad to say this, but we aren't going out for ice cream tonight. We'll have to try again another night. And at that point, they're heartbroken that I've changed my mind. If changing my mind means that they're going to have to face some natural consequences of their choices or to do something they don't want to do, or maybe if it means someone else is going to get to do something that they weren't allowed to do or to have, well, they don't like it. And it starts up this litany of, well, but you said, but you said this. But you said this, and they try to lock me in to something I said previously. And if I change my mind, it's not unheard of that they, they begin to say, you're lying. It feels like a lie to them sometimes. So my children truly have a love-hate relationship with me changing my mind. But I know it isn't just my children. They're just my easiest example. It's all children, and actually, it's all humanity. I was the same way, and in some ways, I still am the same way. And we all are. I'm talking about all of us. God is a parent, a parent with quite a passel of children, way more than my two. How many times a day does God end up changing God's mind as a parent? How many times a day do God's children beg God to change his mind? How often do God's children just love it when God changes his mind? And how often do God's children hate it when God changes his mind? How many times a day does God hear his children say, Well, but you said, but you said this, you said this. And how many times a day do God's children take something that God said earlier and they bend it and they twist it to fit a scenario where God wouldn't really apply it? How many times a day do God's children accuse God of lying because God changed his mind? This entire conversation swirls around a central question, which is, does God ever change God's mind? And the key biblical word here is the Hebrew word naham. It means to be sorry, to repent, to experience regret, to change your mind. The root of this word reflects this idea of breathing deeply. It's like you're, you're taking a breath in and you're, you're reassessing you're getting your feeling and your thoughts about this situation synced up. And sometimes just taking that moment to kind of pause and breathe and reassess results in a change of course. It just does. There are a handful of verses that say that God never nahams. That's that Hebrew word. Uh, God never changes his mind. For instance, Numbers 23.19 says, 
God's not human, that he should lie. Not a human being, that he should change his mind. That's Naham. Does God speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Or we could look at 1 Samuel 15, 29. It says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a human being, that he should change his mind. That's that same word, Naham. He doesn't do it. Psalm 110, verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not Naham change his mind. Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so there it is. It's straightforward. It's clear cut. God never changes God's mind. Case closed. Or is it? See, on the other hand, you've, so you have, yes, you have these few verses to say God never nahams, changes his mind. You have 39 different times that the Old Testament, it explicitly tells us that God did naham, that God did repent. God had regret. God changed his mind. And sometimes it tells us that God's mind was changed because of things that humans were saying to God. And that 39 times, it's not even counting what the New Testament, that's just the Old Testament. It's not counting what the New Testament has to say about God changing his mind. And it's not counting the stories of God changing his mind where it doesn't explicitly say that's what happened, even though that's what the story tells us happened. One of the first examples comes in the earliest chapters of the Bible. God creates Adam, and God's initial evaluation of the situation is, this is good. And then God even doubles down on the initial assessment. This is very good. But then you go to the next chapter, and God God breathes deeply. He's reassessing the situation in light of, how is this unfolding? Adam doesn't complain about being lonely, but God observes that Adam doesn't have a companion, and so now God reflects further and God changes his mind. He says, this is not good. It's not good to be alone. So even before the fall of creation, God was changing his mind about creation, and that sets the tone for the entire story. God describes the way he changes his mind to the prophet Jeremiah like this. This is Jeremiah 18. One day, God brings Jeremiah to the house of a potter, an artist, so that Jeremiah can watch this guy work with the clay. So he's working with the clay, he's working with the clay, and as he does, this pot that he's making, it becomes completely ruined, completely ruined. And so the potter takes the clay, and he folds it under and he, he, it's like he starts over. He works it into a completely new shape. The potter experienced regret, and he, he breathed deeply, and he changed his mind. It's Naham. And as, as Jeremiah watches this unfold, God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 18, he says, Can I not do the same thing with Israel? Or 
with any nation, with any kingdom as this potter? Can I not change my mind? It's that word, Naham. So all throughout scripture, God is repenting regretting, changing his mind, having his mind changed by humans as the situation unfolds. God changes his mind with Noah and Abraham and Sodom and Jerusalem and Moses and Saul and Samuel and King Hezekiah, King Rehoboam, King Ahab, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Jonah, Nineveh. The God of the Bible is never wooden and predictable, static, immobile, inflexible, He's an artist, like that potter. He's a creator seeking co-creators. And so he experiences regret, and he makes new attempts, and he tries new things. And some of them work out, and some of them don't. And God makes new commandments and refreshes or abandons old commandments. And he breathes deeply, and he changes his mind over and over and over in the story. So, wait a minute, which is it? We just read verses, we looked at scripture that goes both ways. Does God change his mind or not? Are the verses that we read earlier that say God never changes his mind wrong? Are they lying? Or is the other set of verses lying? Which set is right, which set is wrong? Well, altogether, they are not wrong, but the question has to do with what God never changes God's mind about. That's where the question lies. See, I tell my children that I'm never going to change my mind about them, that I will love them forever, and nothing they can do can change that. And that's that picture of, it's, it's like God's steadfast covenant love that God's never going to change God's mind about loving you or about loving creation. However, because I'm never going to change my mind about my love for my children, it means I change my mind constantly in life because I'm responsive and adaptive and flexible to their changing circumstances and their changing needs. And so I, I do experience regret and I breathe deeply, and I repent, and I change my mind. Theologian Thomas Oden says, It is precisely because God is unchanging in the eternal character of self-giving love, that is why God is free in responding to changing historical circumstances and versatile in empathy. I like that quote. So it's in this way that the future is both completely settled and unsettled. God's never going to change God's mind about loving you. And because you have free will, it's like, well, we'll see how things unfold. We'll see what you decide to do. And God will seek to love you as completely as possible, no matter what those circumstances turn out to be. The early Christians understood this, that the unchanging love of God requires God to constantly be adaptive and responsive and flexible and changing. And it's this paradox of unchanging love 
requires us to change. And that is a paradox. It's like, what? It doesn't seem like it should make sense until you stop and reflect on it. Unchanging love requires us to change. This is Tertullian. He says it this way. He says, the Bible represents God as responsively dealing with new human contingencies by taking ever new initiatives and thereby sloughing off older forms that have served their time. Uh, Chrysostom, so this is just some church history people, says that God can change is essential to his sovereign freedom, but it does not imply that God changes in essential nature as good. Augustine says it this way, he says, God is unchangeable, yet changing all things. God is never new and never old. God is making all things new, always working, ever at rest, gathering, yet needing nothing. Francis Hall and Alfred Whitehead say the unchangeable God holds an unchangeable purpose. But steadiness of purpose requires variety in execution. And of course, Bob Dylan says, the times, they are a-changing. And they always have, and they always will. So in the midst of the changing times, we have a God who is still loving his creation, but in new ways. Behind every change... God is like a potter who's in love with the clay, who works with the clay, who loves everything that he's created. And it's God's ultimate saving will for all of his creation to be saved, that every bit of clay might ultimately become this reflection of God's beauty and goodness. So the real question about changing God's mind is not about God. It's a question about us. It's about whether we like or whether we agree with how God has changed his mind. It's about how we handle God changing his mind. Do we love it? Are we happy to wear a shirt that was made from more than two kinds of cloth or to eat fruit from a tree that was planted four years ago? Those are verses in the Bible that say, don't do that. But God changed his mind, and we're happy to go along with it. But other verses, is it inconceivable to give up on that thing that God said that we are deeply committed to, that we want to hold God to? Do we try to hold God's feet to the fire with our, but you said... And do we take something that God said earlier and bend it or twist it to fit a scenario where God would no longer apply it? What what motivations, what deep-seated feelings are underneath our response to God changing his mind? And this is where much of the narrative of Scripture lies. It brings us to the story of Jonah today. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, and we're, we're doing a little bit of catch-up here just to make sure we're tracking with the story. So, here it is. 
On the day that Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast, and they put on burlap to show their sorrow. Now when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, and he took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap, and he sat on a heap of ashes. And then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. They said, No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who knows? Perhaps even yet God will Naham change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. Now when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he Naham, he changed his mind. He did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. He became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. He said, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to Naham. You're eager to change your mind about harm and destruction and evil. So Jonah said, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted isn't going to happen. Now, Jonah had plenty of God, but you said this material that he could hold over God's head. He could quote plenty of Bible verses to God, but you said this. Like the prophet Nahum, he had said that the Lord will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. That's Nahum 1, 7 and 8. The prophet Zephaniah said, God's going to stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. That's Zephaniah 2, 13. And Haggai and Zechariah promised the pagan empire of Assyria would be shattered. Remember, Assyria is... The, the empire, the nation, and Nineveh is just the capital of that nation. So the entire empire was going to be shattered. And they're all versions of, God, you said this, you said it. See, Jonah was fine with God changing his mind when it came to calming the storm, saving him from drowning by sending a huge fish. Those changes of mind, they were fine. We don't find Jonah angry about those changes. But not destroying Nineveh? Well, if God changed his mind about those icky people, those horrible people, those Ninevites, they were literally the very worst people on the planet in Jonah's mind. And God had already made it clear. God had already basically said, all Assyrians need to die. And so Jonah wasn't angry because God had surprised him with a switcheroo. It wasn't a surprise. He was angry because he knew God was like this all along. He knew this was the character of God to breathe deeply and to reassess, 
to look at the current situation and then change his mind and and do whatever it was in the current moment that would result in the salvation of all of his creation. And so Jonah was angry because God wasn't following through on those earlier verses that he could quote to God about destroying Nineveh. But you said this. At the bottom of it all, Nineveh could repent and change, and they did. And God could repent and change, and God did. But Jonah refused to repent and change. Now remember, it's not just a story about Jonah. This is a story that happens all the time. We as humans don't pay attention to half of what God says uh, or is trying to do in this world currently. We're happy to ignore the things God said that might feel inconvenient or might require sacrifice or self-giving, call us to deep inner change. We're not necessarily connected to God's ultimate will and how God's trying to make inroads in new neighborhoods or care for those on the margins who are struggling the most, a lot of the time we're not really thinking about that. We're not interested in paying attention to what needs to change inside of us. That's not a very enjoyable topic. So we ignore, we sleep, we run away, we get busy, we work hard, we play hard. We do our own thing. We chase our own selfish ambitions. But then when we come across something that God said that connects with our worldview or our politics or our social vision or our perspective, our bias, our prejudice, our desires for vengeance, our greed, well, those are times when we start to connect with something God said and we kind of latch on to it. Like if God pointed out what someone else is doing wrong or how someone else needs to change or what's going to happen to them, well, suddenly we're all ears. We're not ignoring God anymore. We we remember those verses and we can quote them and memorize them. And it's basically versions of, well, but God said this. God said this. That's wrong. You can't do that. This is going to happen to those people. God said it. And if anyone starts to suggest that, well, wait a minute, perhaps God isn't against our version of those Nineveh people. We all have a version of them. Well, anger can start to well up. Defensiveness, anxiety, bossiness, trying to control other people. We can't stand those differences. And so it's like I either have to control them or I I have to get out of town, which is what Jonah does. So it's worth reflecting. It's worth taking a slow moment to breathe deeply. I invite you to just take some time to reflect on these questions. Take them in. Chew on them. Here they are. How many times have I begged for God's mind to change concerning my circumstances? How many times has God's mind changed concerning my circumstances? Is this idea of God's mind changing uncomfortable for me? And why? 
what person or people group are currently my Nineveh. It's like they are changing, but I, I'm not ready to change. God is changing. I'm not ready to change. When God begins a new initiative in this changing world, do I try to control God's saving work with, but you said God, those kinds of statements? Am I overly focused on scripture that has to do with how others need to change? Underneath my attempts to control others, What feelings, what emotions about me am I avoiding? And what feelings and emotions about others do I need to really process with God? So those are the questions. Take some time. Chew on them. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. 
We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.